house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. husband and wife, family and friends, citizen and country, change the world forever. Miramax Films proudly presents the motion picture event of the year. From the novel by Isabel Allende, The House of the Spirits, Meryl Streep, Jeremy Irons, Glenn Close, Winona Ryder, Antonio Banderas, and Vanessa Redgrave. The House of the Spirits. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that's currently staring back at you with our big, freaky Tim Burton eyes. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here as always with my ghostly sister-in-law, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Your ghostly sister-in-law, who maybe wants to fuck you, probably wants to fuck... My brother, who you're married to. Definitely at least just wants to, like, curl up in bed and, like, sleep, right? Like, that's sort of Glenn's vibe in this. At least that. The one sort of funny scene in the movie that I think was supposed to be funny, that was funny, was Glenn Close in the confessional at church, where (laughs) she sort of (laughs) confesses this thing about she has these sort of, like, quasi-obsessed feelings about Meryl Streep's character, her sister-in-law, yada, yada, yada. She, she, uh, and then the priest is just like, I'm sure you're fine. Like, it's whatever. <laughs> and then, and then she just goes, wait, I'm not finished. <laughs> she's like, but I haven't even gotten to. And then she starts to the part about, she's talks about how she was looking at them while they were having sex. And then the priest is like, tell me more, my child. And it's, <laughs> it's so weird and horny just for sort of like that moment in a movie that like, I feel like could be hornier and like, and sometimes you want it to be less horny, but like for the most part, like it's a very staid film. It's definitely the best stretch of the movie. Like that's probably the best scene in the movie. The most like, yeah. uh, Interesting on both a character level and on, I guess a puerile level because everything else is really, really dull. I was saying when I watched it, that, I was talking to a friend about it and it's it's like if it wasn't so it it would be way more dull and like just the type of thing that we're struggling to find things to talk about if it wasn't so embarrassing. <laughs> yes. And like in a very yes. specific way that we certainly will get into. Like it's mostly bad and like a really boring way where it's just like, Oh, you're just like not interesting. But then like the overarching thing that's bad about it is so mind bogglingly like you can't believe that 
it's bad in this way. Like, and it was well, bad in this way in like the nineties. <laughs> like this isn't I'm like sure the seventies or something like don't that. Don't even know what the fuck this movie is. Right. And there's a reason for that because we should do the, the plot description pretty in- early this week because like, I agree. Yeah. Okay. Well, it, it, the thing that makes it so embarrassing is the reason why this movie is probably wiped off the face of the earth for the most yeah. part. Like, it's available, but like... Oh, it's available, and it's a poster that's... When you're sort of scrolling through titles, I always noticed it at video stores, and I always noticed it sort of when scrolling through things like um, like Amazon titles or something like that, because the poster is like, oh, all of the biggest movie stars... Not even movie stars, but like all the biggest like actors, actors of the early 90s, where it's like Meryl, Glenn Close, Jeremy Irons, Winona writer antonio banderas and it's just like how is this movie with this star-studded cast this invisible like not that long like it went invisible pretty quickly after it was made i mean partly is because it's really just not a good movie yeah and like it's some of the most uh, like the biggest besmirches on some of these people's entire resumes are one of them but like yeah. It's it's a floating head poster, right? Like, I don't know what I expected this movie to be, but it certainly wasn't what it was. Because Well, like, and the title poster, is also promising something that the movie doesn't deliver. Very much. But it's also like, it. while it doesn't deliver what it promises, I'm still not sure what it promises. Like, right. Right. it's not quite like a promise of like a ghost thing but it's like it's just mood it's a candle movie like it promises yeah they're all lit by like movie. soft soft warm candlelight in this uh-huh. in this poster the scent that the house of the spirits poster is advertising is like uh summer mysticism or um, right but you know, like fireside on we um but also there's so there's these like they're floating heads and sort of like a uh like a five angled uh, pattern or whatever. And like some of them you can see, like you can see Meryl's like neck and like collar and hands and you can see Banderas's collar and like, you can see Winona's like neck and whatever, but then like Glenn Close. Jeremy Irons is like looking over a cape or something. Right. Like Jeremy Irons is like, shrouded from like the lower lip on down and like glenn close as fully just like you've cut her head out of something and you were about to to place it on something or she's just like a floaty ghost head and that sort of like plays into <laughs> what the movie is about too she's the she's the undersea like tubular ghost from the abyss and her <laughs> head is at the end of it <laughs> this poster could as easily be advertising like a roundtable discussion as it could be a movie i i want to see what this actual photo shoot was that they used to do this photoshop of like nothing so you hadn't seen this movie before we watched it for the podcast either right i had not so what was i didn't know what it was about i think i'd heard like vague things of it being really bad i've heard multiple people say that it's meryl streep's worst performance i've I had no idea that it was about a Chilean revolution. This is a movie that well, it isn't the... until it is. Like it really like it, that's back, true. Back uh, the three acts revolution. of this movie are three very very different movies. Yes, um, this is the movie. This is a movie that asks the very deep, um, thought provoking question: What if 
Meryl Streep, Glenn Close, and Winona Ryder were Chilean. Yeah, it really does. And it really makes you ponder that. Okay, so wait. So but before we jump into that, because we will jump into that, what was your awareness of this movie when you were younger, if anything? The poster. Just the poster. Okay. Just the poster that it was like an actress movie, but like you would never see it referenced in like interviews or right. anything. I mean, even as a failure, you don't really hear about this movie referenced. Right. That's the thing. It's never like it was never really a punchline. It just sort of got like really swept under the rug. And given the talent involved, that's surprising. So let's do the plot description now. And just, like, get it out of the way, because as you mentioned, like, most of our listeners will not have seen this movie at all, so we want to sort of bring you in as to what we're talking about. We are, of course, talking about The House of the Spirits, which is technically a 1993 movie, but did not make it into America until the spring of 1994. It was released sort of in Europe in the fall of 93, but it opened April 1st, 1994 in the U.S. It is... Very Goya's Ghosts. Right. Yes. Directed by... so much of Goya's Ghosts during this. (laughs) <laughs> it's not I, I didn't but now that you mention it i'm like oh i probably should have uh directed by the danish filmmaker billy august also written by billy august based on the novel by isabel allende which was like a pretty like acclaimed novel and certainly a very acclaimed novelist isabel allende uh starring meryl streep Jeremy Irons, Winona Ryder, Glenn Close, Antonio Banderas, Maria Conchita Alonso, Vincent Gallo, we'll get into it, Vanessa Redgrave. <laughs> it's with Armin Mueller-Stahl and Vanessa Redgrave. That's the other thing, is I texted you while I'm watching it, because the very first actor title card, it's all five of the main actors on one title card spaced out in like these very, I said the agents must have really gotten their money's worth, because the placing of everybody's name is all just sort of just like spaced out five ways it's like a five-way tie for who's, who's it's kind of this fair movie. because it is somewhat a shared movie like it's very oh, yeah. each of the three sections of this movie are very uh disparate but also unequally balanced in who they follow i mean i think the true lead of the movie is jeremy irons unfortunately i mean kind of yeah he's the most he's the most consistent through line through the whole movie he's the one even though it's winona's sort of uh voiceover that ties the whole movie together which we'll get into that also um but with armin mueller style and vanessa redgrave it also stars uh terry polo who you may remember from the meet the parents movies or in my case from latter season west wing uh where she played uh the eventual first lady uh married to jimmy smith's Grace Gummer is kind of the main character for for the first 15 minutes of this movie. Young she plays Meryl. Young Meryl, of course. This is Grace's uh, film debut. Sarita Chaudhary also shows up uh, in a very unfortunate scene. And uh, the movie's handling of that is something we will probably talk about uh, at some point. It's an amazing cast. It is an amazing cast and a director who was like, real real hot at the moment which we'll also Mm -hmm. talk about um so it was a lot of talent to go so incredibly wrong chris i'm gonna give you 60 seconds and you can explain just what happens gonna do as much as i can to fit in 60 seconds i feel like this movie probably needs like a 90 second handicap on top of it to Get to all there's of it. a lot of movie it's also two hours and 20 minutes long so yeah it uh there's a lot to it yeah yeah all right are you ready Probably. though 
I, I think so. All right, 60 seconds on the clock. I'm hitting start now. Okay, so we're following Clara, who is a young child at the beginning. She is clairvoyant. She can tell when somebody's going to die. Her sister ends up dying, and uh, meanwhile, uh, her uh, the man she was promised to, Esteban, he goes and starts a hacienda to like build up his own wealth to uh, like get to the family, whatever. Eventually, he uh, meets the older Clara. Um, after he has accrued some wealth, he marries her. She's been taking a vow of silence, but as soon as she marries him, drops it. Meanwhile, his uh, Sister, uh, his sister Farala um, uh, moves in with them and becomes like very close to Clara. They, uh, she ends up kind of being obsessed with both of them. He banishes her away after they have a child. That child is Alba, who uh, he even sends Alba away because she's like becoming friends with uh, uh, people of a lower class. Ten Meanwhile, uh, she comes. Alba comes back, and there's uh, uh, Esteban is going to be a conservative candidate. He loses. Um, Alba is in love with a child that she uh, was friends time. with. I couldn't even get all of it with cutting like every possible corner. Also, I'm pretty sure Winona's character's name is Blanca and her daughter is Alba. Okay. Very confusing because like you see everybody at different ages too. I couldn't yes. keep track of it. Yes. So anyway, she's in love with Antonio Banderas, who they were children together. He... His father worked at the Hacienda, so it's like Esteban was like, no! Esteban, meanwhile, is also a tyrant, and he's like, oh, yeah. Raping Sarita Chowdhury, like, in the first 10 minutes of the movie. With literally just, like, almost like a throwaway scene. It's just like he's out riding his horse, and then he just, like, sees a woman her and, and has her. his way with her. It's just it's it's like, awful. It's awful. Um, and then she is, like, asking him for money, like, this is your son throughout. The son grows up to be Vincent Gallo, who like is leading the revolution. And when he'd shown up while Winona Ryder was a child, he like almost molests her and then eventually does when she's taken in by the revolution because um they like they're uh, against Jeremy Irons and they don't realize that she is, you know, supportive of the People's Party. Right. Gallo is sort of with the uh the they never say Pinochet, but like the Pinochet people. He's right, sort of uh, right. rooting out the the socialists and Antonio Banderas who like for the first of many times is playing a uh a workers party uh, rabble rouser in South America. <laughs> like I feel like he's really he carved a niche there, and we didn't even realize it because he had started to with uh, House of the Spirits, obviously continuing that trend with Evita. Um, yeah, so... Also, the only person who is in this main cast who is not white playing Chilean, and he's Spanish. And he's Spanish, exactly. Well, yeah, that's the other thing. It's just like, even when the fuck? they cast non-white people in this film, it's like... Well, we're gonna ca- we're gonna cast like Sarita Chowdhury, and it's just like, well, okay, um, but like Sarita is also not Chilean, so it's just like it's and again, right? Like, She's of Indian descent, so it's this. And part of me, the generous part of me, the sort of the uh, the person willing to put out the benefit of the doubt, was initially like because the other thing was Isabel Allende was like very very resistant to having anybody adapt this for a while, and. Ultimately, Billy August was like the one person whose like vision she uh, 
you know, latched onto. And I was like, is there a statement being made about colonialism and sort of Western, sort of white Western interventionalism in that we're going to cast, because it's not just that the stars of this movie are white, they're the whitest white people. Like, they really uh-huh. are just like, and and I was just like, is there a I mean, statement the being Antonio made about Banderas like... The thing still has its problems because like, this yes. is a, a narrative that is rooted in a Chilean national identity, right? And like, you could, yes. I mean, like, there, yes. I've seen arguments that like, Antonio Banderas is considered by some to be white spanish right and it's like but like this is truly about a national identity on top of it that's like very intrinsic to what this is about but i was like is there a chance that billy august is trying to in casting white people as the sort of wealthy landowning sort Mm -hmm. of uh politically obtuse um brutalizing sort of ruling class characters and I'm just like, and then casting, you know, different people as the, the you know, the workers on the Hacienda or whatever. But like, to kind I, of create this subtextual divide in a but way. But I, but I couldn't sell myself on that. I really, you I can. tried to for a second, but like, there's really, he's not really making that statement. And it's not really, the movie doesn't really support that reading of it. And I, yeah, I, I just want to say I tried. these, like, secondary characters aren't cast correctly. Like, That's what that I mean. That is the point. Right. It's so right. flimsy. Because, as, like, because then Sarita you wouldn't Chow. cast Vincent Gallo as, <sighs> you know, Sarita Chaudhary's son, which is just like... Uh, it, I will say... He's so objectionable. Going to, I find like, him so objectionable. Vincent Gallo out of the way. Noted Trump supporter Vincent Gallo. Oh, I didn't even realize way. that. It he doesn't surprise me at all. cast person. Oh, my God. <laughs> as potential, uh, uh, you know, uh, skeezy child rapist Vincent Gallo. I, I mean, he's certainly like, but this is also like Vincent Gallo, like five full years before Buffalo 66. Like there is like, he's not known as anybody. Roger Ebert fully like misidentifies him in the review. I said I wasn't going to bring up Roger Ebert's uh in- inaccurate uh review of this riddled movie, with inaccuracies like, review um god love and maybe i mean rest like Roger it's a profession Ebert. you shouldn't have those type of inaccuracies in a review but like when i read it i was like i kind of get it like at a certain point your brain kind of checks out in this movie yeah he does mention in the in the review that isabel allende he identified her as the widow of salvador allende who was the uh, president of Chile that gave way to the uh, Pinochet uh, coup in Chile. I am by no means a scholar on Latin American uh, recent history, but um, she Isabel Allende is the second cousin. I think her father was the cousin of Salvador Allende, but she was not married to him. Although I think way the confusion go, there, I think the confusion there was that Salvador Allende's wife was also named Isabel. So like understandable perhaps um we didn't have wikipedia in 1993 we didn't and listen that's all i'm going on so it's not like i am some uh uh brilliant like i said latin american scholar or anything but anyway um it feels like there's a lot of things that just wouldn't have gotten off of the ground floor now that were able to sort of flourish i think especially because you were you know working with a European filmmaker and also the fact that like 
Allende is such a she's so sort of respected and revered as a as a novelist that there's sort of a a kind of oh well this is just very literary you know what i mean so the idea that we have this main character who is a you know a brutal you know rapist earlier in the movie and yet we're still meant to sort of follow his life story and by the end be kind of um sort of heartwarmed a little bit by the fact that he came around enough to like shuttle Antonio Banderas's character out of the country into like the Canadian embassy or whatever and i'm just like by any modern standard that wouldn't be possible today in a film. Just like it wouldn't be even conceivable to cast a movie about so much about, you know, the Chilean people with, like, again, the whitest of white actors. I mean, I'm not sure that I would buy the character arc even in a novel. It's a no, lot me neither. to ask of the audience, but, like, this movie couldn't uh, do it more, like, sloppily it's it's definitely is the type of movie you can tell is from like a great novel where they're trying to fit everything in and like even in two hours and 20 minutes like yeah it's so like uh thin in terms of all these characterizations and like these huge passages of time right but the other thing about this novel is that it is like one of the things it is most known for is it's being it's a magical realist novel. And the <laughs> moments in this movie where you're reminded that Meryl Streep's character is has sort of these like supernatural qualities to her, they come and go so like isolated from everything else and so much time goes in between those moments that doesn't really connect it. And you're just like, oh, right. Why is that table levitating? Oh, right, because she can make the table levitate. And It's, it's very um, Amanda Seyfried's boobs being able to tell when it's <laughs> raining. Like, <laughs> Clara can tell when someone has died, when okay. they've already died, but only if they're in her family. And then sometimes she can make some shit move on a table. Right. And like, that's the extent of it. The one time I think it's effective in the movie is when you see Glenn Close show up at the house and everyone can see her and she's already dead and she doesn't speak a word and whatever. And then Meryl is just very sort of dramatically just goes like, um, wait, what is her name? Farrella? Farrella is dead. Farrella has died. Farrella has died. Um, And it... The movie is only, like, sporadically even interested in it. And yet you have this movie called House of the Spirits. And it's just like, oh, so you expect that there is going to be some sort of, like, ghostly through line through it. And obviously, in the novel, I imagine that the magical realism of it relates and, like, ties into the themes of Chilean history and sort of South American politics and all this sort of stuff. But like that doesn't come through in the film at all. It just seems like these really isolated incidents of like Meryl Streep's character is a little freaky. And well, and Clara's probably the least interesting character of all of these oh, leads. So that's not like, probably like her mo- clairvoyance feels like a bug and not a feature. I get you why know? people like, may say that like Mer- this is Meryl's worst performance, but like she doesn't have a character to work with at all. At okay, all. but there's like the scene where she's 
aged with her granddaughter and she's trying to put the (laughs) star on top of a Christmas tree and fully just like fumbles and fumbles back into a table and knocks over the things in a table and then sits in a chair and says to her granddaughter, I believe I'm beginning to leave the earth or something. There's also the moment... It where is maybe the most embarrassing scene I have ever seen Meryl give. It's, it's very bad. bad. There's also the scene where uh, Jeremy Irons' character, as her husband, sort of backhands her in anger. And she, like, flails against the wall and sort of, like, dramatically kind of, like, swoons to the floor. And I'm just like, oh, wow. Like, this is a very um, um, movement class at... Uh, at the actor studio or something like that. I don't know. I it can't is, really say it's her worst performance. It doesn't. Uh, it's not her best, but like I don't. It doesn't I, uh, stop uh, uh, Florence Foster Jenkins, Flofo, or <laughs> uh, Topsy. Uh, oh, Robbins how rude! For You're me, so rude. Uh, as like a, You're so uh, rude. Overarching. I will. I will not accept that. <sighs> Topsy this, forever. Her scene in Mary Poppins is horrible. It's um, a delight. I, I don't from mean to be overly to bitchy or blunt here, but like I hated it. Um, but like in terms of individual acting beats, like I I understand the people who think that this is Meryl's worst performance. I will say I almost need her and Jeremy Irons to make another movie together just so they can get it right because the French Lieutenant's Woman is also bad, and it's just like at some point Meryl and Jeremy have to make a good movie together because like I need to see that. It's, I mean, I know it got her an Oscar nomination, and I'm sure some people like it, but I had no patience for it whatsoever. <laughs> Just whatsoever. What did you think of Winona Ryder in this movie? I mean, I felt like she probably had what would have been the more dull character from a script perspective, but I found her at least, like, compellingly normal <laughs> because like her stretch of the movie is really the last third right um it's like yes it's glenn close's movie she's she's voicing over the whole thing sort yes. of yeah she gives voiceover to the whole thing the voiceover i did not think was good but the performance no. i thought was like at least watchable to the point where i would have maybe zoned out at this point but like she kept me in the movie um this is an incredibly sort of important era of Winona Ryder's career where she got her first obviously like the sort of late 80s early 90s like teen stuff your Beetlejuices your Mermaids your uh, all of that but then like 93 94 where she gets the Oscar nomination in 93 for The Age of Innocence and then 94 she stars in Reality Bites which is like a big hit and sort of a uh, generation defining kind of a film And then Little Women, which is another period piece where she gets another Oscar nomination for Best Actress this time. Kind of like the last-minute surprise Oscar nomination. um, And then in the midst of all of that is this film where she is sort of placed on a level with Meryl Streep, Glenn Close, Jeremy Irons, like the tops of the tops, right? She's right there with them. I... It's interesting that she got both of her Oscar nominations are for period pieces. And she's great in both of those movies. Like, I have no quarrel with either one of them. If she had won the Oscar in either one of those two categories, I would have been perfectly fine. And actually really happy, because it sort of feels cosmically correct that Winona should have an Oscar now at this, like, in retrospect. 
I find her so modern in her sensibility mm-hmm. that especially in this movie, even though she's not really it's not a costume drama for her, she's playing a character who's like a, a young woman in like probably what, the seventies? Sixties. Sixties, seventies. So Thirty something years like that? before it was set, but that's like, you know, uh somebody now giving uh, a a young uh, woman performance for a movie set in the 90s, you know? Right. But she's, she comes across as so, every time, like, I don't know what it is, but like Winona Ryder with that haircut and with a pair of jeans, I'm just like, okay, well, she's going down to the gas station to dance to My Sharona with her friends. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like, I can't, I can't separate it. And I think the voiceover is the same thing where it's just sort of just like, oh, it's just like, it's Winona Ryder writing in her journal in Heathers or something like that. It's Well, I mean, it, I, her, her career is kind of this balance between more like uber modern like things that maybe is more uh, representative of her persona or what we think her persona is and a lot of period pieces too because like before even these movies you mentioned there's Bram Stoker's Dracula which I think she's great in and like giving exactly Mm. what that movie needs and basically functions even though it's Dracula functions as a period piece as well yeah I need to every time I watch that movie I have a little bit of a different take on Winona I think a lot of it is that she's in so many scenes with Keanu, and I think Keanu is so mis- miscast in that film. And he is another actor who always seems very 90s to me, no matter what, and especially at that time. And I kind of disagree that he's miscast. I think oh, it's kind of the so movie's bad. point that he's kind of a feckless boob in it. I get feckless boob, but like he's so out of place and out of time in that thing. And I like. But I it makes know. it work, though. I mean, I you don't know, know I Even love if you that say movie. He's bad. Like the fact that he is bad makes the whole dynamic work. It certainly doesn't derail the movie, which I think is one of the great movies of the 1990s. But anyway, we're uh, we're sort of we're getting giving, far afield. We're getting far afield. That was the phrase I was going to w- use. Oh my God, it's almost like we have a psychic connection. It's like almost like I've on. watched you have sex with my oh. brother. <laughs> okay, all right. The Jeremy Irons of it all for like one second. For as much as the casting is insane and the character he's playing is unworkable. I think he gives a pretty good performance in this film. I think he's pretty dreadful. I think he gets progressively <laughs> dreadful. Um, the, I love Jeremy Irons, so we should talk about Jeremy Irons, but this performance, like I kept thinking as the movie went on, you know, they say that when you age, your nose and your ears oh never stop growing, oh right? God. Well, yeah. he is playing a man who his upper jaw never stops growing. <laughs> the teeth, man. The teeth. And like, okay, yes, they are all playing Chilean. I think with the exception of like the hair dye going wild in this movie, um, including Glenn Close, who we'll talk about. I want to talk about her performance. Yes. He's really the only one that you feel like they're really trying to do like a brown face. And it's part of it is an aging makeup. And I feel that's like... what I think it is. I think it's the aging makeup. And it's like, it's not like it, there's definitely like some bronzer element to it. But it, it yeah. to me, for his problem, like it's already problematic casting. So like you're not going to get away from it. But like I don't think they doubled down on it by, by going too, um, dark for for lack of a better and less horrifying term but yeah well 
Uh, okay, so I love Jeremy Irons, even though, like, he's said and retracted some really, like, gross shit in recent years. Oh, God. Um, but I think as an actor, I do love a lot of his work, and I can't really think of another analog of a, like, prestige actor, you know, the kind of performer that we look at in highfalutin terms, who almost exclusively plays, like, psychopaths and sexual deviants. Right. So, okay, this will transition me into, you know, talking about this era of his career being, like, he's at the top of his profession. He's sort of how remember you know how we sort of like talk about daniel day lewis now and it's just like daniel mm-hmm. day lewis and like he was sort of that where it was like dead ringers in 88 the um uh he didn't get nominated for that one but i remember when he won this is the they would have never film. done that right no but when he won for reversal of fortune just a couple of years later i remember he like mentioned I think in one of his speeches, whether it was like the Oscar speech or maybe mentions Cronenberg and mentions to how sort of like he wouldn't have gotten the Oscar without sort of the momentum that Dead Ringers had sort of given him, which is one of those, you know, things that we Oscar people talk about a lot about mm-hmm. how sometimes even if somebody doesn't get a nomination for something sort of like Paul Giamatti doesn't get the Cinderella Man nomination if he doesn't have the momentum from the sideways nomination that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's in. Damage in 92, which gets a nomination for Miranda Richardson, but is also like a pretty well-regarded film. M. Butterfly, 1993. Uh, 94 is a big year. House of the Spirits gets released, and that's not the part that's big. The big part for him is, of course, he's the voice of Scar in The Lion King, which is, you know, a world's... His finest work as a psychopath and or sexual deviant. Yeah, Yes, basically. True. Um, he's the main villain in Die Hard with a Vengeance in 95. Fuck yeah. Um, and then he makes the uh, the Lolita remake in 1997. So again, once again, falling under your uh, rubric. Um, and then sort of starts to fade from there. I feel like that the Lolita movie is sort of like the last big sort of hurrah for him in films for a good long while. He'll show up in things like Kingdom of Heaven or Being Julia. He's pretty good in Inland Empire, I will say. There's Uh, a long stretch where he just kind of becomes like well-regarded but seen as hammy because he's in like genre stuff for a while, right? Right. It felt like he got another like boon in appreciation is that, if that's even the right word um when watchmen came out oh absolutely i was going to bring that up he's fantastic in watchmen and i love that especially when it comes at the same time where he's playing alfred in the dc uh batman movies Barb. justice league movies and it's just like oh that's such a bummer that sort of like that's where we've decided that jeremy irons's career is now but like the fact that at that same time he gets this role in Watchmen, which is he gets to be really he's villainous, but also sort of like cheeky and also sort of um, mischievous in a way that like was surprising for that character, I think. Well, and it feels like a return to like the true Jeremy Irons that like we love where it's like it's this compelling villain versus like 
I don't want to say phoned in, but I guess phoned in performance in things like Justice League. Right. Um, he was in Red Sparrow, uh, that Jennifer Lawrence movie that's completely fallen off the earth. Right. Even the, when he was doing like the Borges, right? Oh, right. Which like we talked about the Tudors recently on Showtime, but that was another Showtime series. Showtime period sex shows. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, the other one I want to shout out too, because I'm me is he's in Beautiful Creatures, the uh, sort of YA supernatural uh, movie that I always talk about loving with Alden Ehrenreich and um, Alice Englert. But he and Emma Thompson are both in that movie doing things with a Southern accent that no person should do. And yet it's (laughs) so... Like, the casting of the sort of elders in that movie, where it's, like, it's Irons and Thompson sort of going toe-to-toe with their insane accents. Margot Martindale wearing full birds on her head as hats. Eileen Atkins (laughs) is in it. Viola Davis is there lending gravitas to the whole thing. It's absolutely, when I say you should go see Beautiful Creatures, I'm really not kidding. I'm not being, like, ironic or whatever and trying to trick you into seeing something bad. It is a goddamn delight so that's all i will say about that um also what's her face um emmy rossum is a freaking hoot in that movie like she's amazing anyway all right, all right anyway uh jeremy irons okay talk about glenn close you love glenn close in this movie uh <laughs> listeners think that i hate her i don't hate her i've just uh spoken uh very loudly about performances first i don't like this performance i think she is great in this movie to the point where it's like she dies at the like at the end of the first section of the movie right and the movie that's when it it's already not good but it fully falls off once she's not in the story anymore she is playing the like biggest downer in all of south america in this film like every time you sort of check in on her it's just like Especially when she's first introduced, where she's just like, she's Jeremy Irons' sad sister. She's the one who's just like, mother's not doing well today. Like, that kind of a thing. She's just like, she doesn't smile. She wears all black. She's dressed like she's in mourning. Like She literally at is all times. all black the entire time she's on screen. At all times. And then you sort of, then Meryl gets introduced into the mix and she becomes like, obsessed with her and you sort of think oh no this is going to be some like weird stalkery like she's going to end up killing meryl isn't she and it not it's not that and you see her kind of there's that scene where they're playing badminton on the lawn and irons's character is getting frustrated because he doesn't like that uh his wife and his sister are so close but like you're seeing uh Farrella uh, sort of come out of her shell a little bit and she's having fun she's laughing or whatever and it's just like who is this once dour creature or whatever and it's really kind of lovely to see and, and like she's still dressed in all black but it's like right. oh she has a piece of like white jewelry on maybe she's <laughs> right. happy now right exactly I was talking to uh, Mark of Dublin Zoetrope about this movie, and he said Glenn Close is in, like, um, Mrs. Danvers mode. Yeah. And that is absolutely spot on. It's a good mode. It's a good mode for her. Yeah. Um, I enjoyed I her Glenn in this movie as well. Glenn Close is the only person who knows what temperature of performance this movie needs of the entire yeah. cast. But also, she's one of the few who's given, like, a real kind of 
character with a lot of angles and a lot of meat to the bones there. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot to hold on to with that. And she gets that scene the th- towards the end of her time in the film where she curses uh, Esteban, her brother. Uh, I don't know. It's really well done. And it's, Yeah, she's great. Yeah. I've so, said before that, like, in some of her bad performances, it's like she's on an island from the rest of the movie. Right. And I think that's true of this one, but instead of, like, giving a performance that the movie doesn't need, she's the one who's right, and it's like, this is what the movie should be. Right. It's also wild to see her and Meryl in a movie together. This was the first of two movies that not only they did together, but uh, it's the second of two movies they did together that we've covered. This is, by the way, our seventh, or our, sorry, our eighth Meryl Streep movie on this at Oscar Buzz. She is by far our most, uh, she's our buzziest actress. Well, her, that. Matt Damon, and Claire Danes can all duke it out. We've almost exhausted Claire Danes, but it'll be a yeah. battle royale between Meryl and Matt Damon. So, um, Evening is the other one that they would do together uh, many, many years after this movie. But the the thing that's funny about Glenn Close is her sort of her kind of celebrated futility with Oscar, right? Seven nominations, no wins. And at some point along the line, before the Albert Nobbs nomination, I would say even, there was this sense of like Glenn Close is the goofus and Meryl is the gallant, right? Where like Meryl had won multiple Oscars uh, through the eighties. It was sort of like they were the two big, like most nominated. I would guess I don't have any, you know, facts and figures to back that up, but I would imagine the two most nominated actresses of the eighties. And Meryl, of course, is a two time winner by that point. And, Glenn isn't and I sort of you get it in your head that like oh Meryl kept beating Glenn and that's not really the case they've only ever been nominated in the same category twice first time in 87 Glenn is nominated for Fatal Attraction Meryl is nominated for Ironweed they both lose to Cher although so they're they both lose but Meryl seems like more of the winner because Meryl is knew she wasn't winning and is so happy for Cher when Cher gets mm-hmm. announced. Meanwhile, Glenn did have a chance to win and didn't. And that was her like fourth nomination in five years. And uh, really, or fourth, maybe fourth nomination in six years. Anyway, uh, the the weight of all of those losses, I think, was sort of being felt on her. She never really, like, she never scowls or anything. But you get the sense that, like, oh, that one was probably tough on Glenn. And then they don't get nominated in the same category again until Al, uh, she's nominated for Albert Nobbs in 2011. And that's the year that Meryl beats her. That's the one where, like, Meryl wins for the Iron Lady. But I do feel like there was already this sense that, like, oh, Glenn keeps losing to Meryl. And it's odd that that's sort of how cosmically it felt. Am I the only one who thought that, or is that... Is that just my psychosis at work? I think weirdly, and some of it is because of misogyny, they get pitted against each other. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's been outspokenness in, like, interviews from a lot of actresses, and I think Glenn has been one of them, though not one of the most outspoken, that, like, they just can't get the roles that Meryl gets, you know, yeah. or, like, Meryl, uh, they've lost roles to Meryl, or things like that. Um, I watch a lot of those, for whatever reason, I, I've been on a YouTube kick of 
YouTube keeps suggesting to me different uh, speeches from the different AFI tributes. Usually it's either the Mike Nichols tribute or the uh, Meryl Streep tribute, and it's a lot of the same people in that. But And all the ones where people are talking about Meryl, I know Tracy Ullman mentions it, um, and I think maybe Carrie Fisher maybe mentions it, about just like Meryl gets all the roles. There's nothing left for anybody else because Meryl gets it. Like it's one of those things where everybody sort of talks about it in good humor, but it's definitely a real thing. That like Mm -hmm. nobody else over 50 gets anything because Meryl gets offered everything. And Meryl likes to work. Like Meryl takes all these roles because Meryl likes to work. So um, yeah, you can sense that there is I mean, there's not. It's a rivalry that's maybe not a rivalry. Like they're clearly friends. Yeah. Meryl mentions, you know, her, her, you know, her good friend Glenn Close a lot. But I think we, being sort of like, you know, gay bitches of the internet, it's sort of like the Nicole Kidman, Naomi Watts. I'm sure Nicole Kidman and Naomi Watts are like genuinely the loveliest, best of friends. But we decide that we're going to turn them into um, sort of passive aggressive sisters. <laughs> we're like nicole's the one that everything good happens to and naomi's the one that everything bad happens to because it's funnier essentially um and i think that's sort of what we had done with glenn and merrill for years there right well and like this whole the, it's a two-pronged thing to me a i have no stake in claim in this because the year that they that merrill beat glenn close neither of those performances had any business being nominated um and then like (laughs) you have this movie the one where they're on screen together and glenn close like is blowing her off the screen yes so yes i don't know this it's also interesting because like we ascribe glenn close to the 80s in terms of a screen presence as an Oscar presence. But like this period, it's worth noting because like this is where if you look at her like IMDb page, it looks like the roles are kind of drying up for Glenn Close. But this is also when she was doing a lot of theater too. She was returning yes. to the theater. Yes. Um, I forget the exact dates, but like this is around the time of Sunset Boulevard. Um, right. She did Death and the Maiden at this time. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. I don't think like I don't think Glenn Close's career is anything to turn up your nose at, like in any regard. Not at all. And I think that's a big part of the reason why she is still sort of getting this push to oh, she should win an Oscar. Um, well, she'll probably win this year. Well, at this point where we did say that the Globes, we did so. say that a couple years ago, and uh, at this point, I'm not I... counting chickens until. They well, hatch. I mean, I was the naysayer because I hated the movie and I didn't like the performance. Most but, people like, assume I she's feel stronger win. this year than I felt that year. Okay, all right. Well, we're we're marking that down. Um, we'll see. Maybe uh, who knows? We'll beat her at the Globes and the rest, and I could be very, very wrong. But so this movie was an early Miramax movie. They acquired it in like early 1993 while it was still filming, and the it was. I the variety article that I read about it said it was the biggest acquisition uh, of Miramax's to to that date. And the director Billy August at this point is an incredibly sort of hot foreign director where he had directed a film called Pele the Conqueror in 1988. It gets not only it, not only it wins the Palme d'Or it wins the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, which is a clip I watched just before we started today, presented by Jacqueline Bissett, 
uh, Candace Bergen and glomming on for like the clout of it all, Jack Valenti. It's just like just go away, Jack. Um, Candace's hair is so high in this in this clip. It's it's quite uh, lovely. Um, I'll put it on our uh, Tumblr page. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so Pele the Conqueror wins not only, uh, like I said, wins the Palm, wins the Oscar for foreign language film, gets a Best Actor nomination for Max von Sydow. So like at a time when like foreign language nominations. I mean, they're still rare today. They're rare. So uh, it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then 1992, he wins the Palme d'Or again for... Two a f- films in a row. Right. For a film called The Best Intention. So, like, this is his movie coming off of his second Palme d'Or. So, like, clearly, even though this movie ends up being released in April, which I have to imagine is sort of a nod to... um, Partially a nod to the fact that the film isn't any good, but partially it's also, like, Miramax would make early early in the year the releases try to work for them and especially mm-hmm. in their earlier years so like it's not uh maybe not this the sign of uh the fact that they didn't have it this earmarked for awards because obviously they did in the announcement that miramax had acquired it they talk about billy august's two palm doors and talk about the sort of oscar pedigrees of all of its stars like this had kind of all of the earmarks going in billy august's career is interesting He's a Danish filmmaker. He, like I said, like not a lot of people have won two Palme d'Ors in their career. So like that's pretty amazing. The only one I can think of off the top of my head, at least for two in a row, is Michael Haneke. There's other right. people who have won two. There have, but two it's in like a it's a it's it's a it's a pretty limited uh, uh, group of people, though I will say. Um, Later in the 90s, after The House of the Spirits, he directs Julia Ormond in Smilla's Sense of Snow, a film I know as a title, quite like um, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. It's the sort of Euro, fancy European Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead for me, Smilla's Sense of I Snow. I never want to watch Smilla's Sense of Snow because I don't want it to be anything more than a title. It need, That movie needs to stay a construct to me. You need it to be as pure as uh, snow in your brain. Mm-hmm. And then he, of course, nobody remembers this movie, but us, I think. The we 19, will eventually do this movie. The 1998 non-musical Les Miserables, which stars Liam Neeson as uh, Jean Valjean, uh, Jeffrey Rush is Javert, Uma Thurman is Fantine, Claire Danes, God, it'll be another Claire Danes for us, um, <laughs> as Cosette. And just based on the novel, just like no singing, no dancing, no nothing. And that was, I think, got a a good bit of publicity in America. It got a good push and didn't do anything, sort of like died on the vine. And then the only other movie since the 1998 Le Miserables that I even ended up hearing about he's kept making movies since then uh but he makes a movie in 2017 called 55 steps starring hillary swank and helena bonham carter that all i know of it was that it was uh, at the toronto film festival that year and i kept sort of hovering over it at like i know this is probably not going to be good or not going to be a thing but like it's Hillary Swank and Helena Bonham Carter in a Billy August film. Like maybe I should. It's give like it a one shot. of those movies that's like the second Thursday gala. It's like the like, Rob Reiner LBJ movie, and it's just like I know I shouldn't, but maybe I should, and then ultimately I don't. And uh, so, Fifty Five Steps will remain a mystery to me as well. Uh, do you have any uh, Billy August sort of uh, uh, associations? 
I don't. Um, I should probably watch Pele the Conqueror, though. I was thinking um, the same thing. It's funny because, I'm trying like... trying to go through, like, 80s Oscar, like, wins, because, like, that was a huge decade of, like, blind spots for me, for major oh, yeah. Oscar wins and, like, major nominations. And it's proven to be a miserable experience yeah like the 80s 80s, o- 80s and oscar, oscar with everything except for the best suck. original song category is really bad yeah i just finally caught up to an accidental t- the accidental tourist with gina davis's wind and that movie blows yeah like, it's, it's not good for all the really talent hurt. in that movie kathleen Ugh. turner and gina davis for it to be that sort of like dull and and kind of unpleasant is yeah the thing about Pele the Conqueror is you read the log line and it's just like it's about Max von Sydow and his like 12-year-old kid going from like Sweden to Denmark looking f- to sort of improve their lives as farm laborers and it's just like on its face it's just like oh that seems like it could be like you know this sort of adorable father and son sort of you know persevering movie no but it's like a miserablest movie isn't it well it's got to be because it won the palm like i'm like it can't be that saccharine if it won the palm door it's not like colia or something like that right and Mm. but i yeah i've never seen it before so um but the fact that billy august did win two palm doors kind of inspired me i made a game for you chris i'm gonna put you through the alter egos paces again Oh, hell yeah. So Alter Egos is our game where I name three characters from films or television. And then Chris has to guess what movie the actors who played all those characters were in together. So I'm going to give you 10 of these. All of the answers for these will be films that have won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. I should maybe mention that. I keep saying Palme d'Or like everybody. Like, this is the top prize of the Cannes Film Festival. You probably know. But if you don't, that's fine. Um, All right, so all 10 of these are going to be Palme d'Or winners. Are you ready? I am. I'm very excited. Okay, I'm going to take a sip of my water before we start. All right, your very first one, your three characters are Vito Corleone, Ellie Arroway, and Mr. White. Um, Okay, so Mr. White. Yes. Um, Well, Vito Corleone is either... Bobby De Niro or Brando. Ellie Carraway, I know that a- one. Arroway, not Carraway. Arroway. Ah. Um, Mr. White, I think, is Harvey Keitel in Reservoir Dogs, so it's got to be Taxi Driver. It is Taxi Driver. Any guess who Dr. Ellie Arroway is? Uh, Sybil Shepherd. It's not. It's Jodie oh, Foster. Oh, no, 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 no. That's Jodie Foster in Contact. In Contact, yes. So, yeah, De Niro is Vito Corleone. Harvey Keitel is Mr. White. You got it exactly. Very good. All right. Next one. Vito Corleone, Joseph Pulitzer, and Jed Bartley. Um, Jed Bartley. What was the other two? I was talking to myself. <laughs> Vito Corleone and Joseph Pulitzer, and then Jed Bartlett. Okay, so I'm guessing that it's going to be a Brando movie. Instead of De Niro. Ted Bartler. What was the middle name? Jed Bartlett, not Bartlett. Jed Bartlett. And then uh, Joseph Pulitzer. Joseph Pulitzer. So it's a bunch of dudes in a movie. I'm guessing with Brando. Huh. 
Can I get some hints on the other two? Uh, yeah, Joseph Pulitzer. What is that name? Sort of uh, what bells? Pulitzer Prize. Right. So he's like, what's his profession? Probably he's a writer. Yeah, but like more broadly, he's a critic. A, no. Uh, uh, if if it's got the name, the prize named after him, he's probably sort of a big wig in that industry. So what is he probably? What does he probably own? Uh, newspaper journalist. Right, right, right. So then he would employ people to uh, perhaps get that newspaper out to people. Correct. And what would you call those people who go and deliver those newspapers? Newsies? Yes. Okay. Um, I mean, Christian Bale is not the lead person in Newsies. Yeah, it who's is. The, who's, who's the fucking villain in Newsies? Yeah, um, that's the question, isn't it? I was not a Newsies kid, strangely enough. Jed Bartlett, so, by the way, is from television, and it's a television show I love that I'm guessing you've never seen if this didn't ring a bell for you. Oh, okay. Um, Very prestigious television show that I adore to this day, even though a lot of people find it uh, problematic and find it's creator. I'm going to get this faster if I just think of Brando movies that won the Palm d'Or. Um, not Last Tango in Paris. I think On the Waterfront got it. Uh, or it was at Cannes, at least. Oh, no, 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 no. It's Apocalypse Now. Yeah, walk me through it. Um, I just know that he, uh, he's in it. Uh, so wait, the, um, oh, that's going to be embarrassing. Is Martin Sheen the TV character? Yes. Martin Sheen is yeah, Jed Bartlett. That's great. I guess yeah. I've never, I, I watched maybe a few episodes of the West Wing. Joseph Pulitzer is Robert Duvall in Newsies, my friend. Gotcha. Robert gotcha. Duvall. Okay. Your next characters are Herb Stemple, Pops Racer, and Hedda Hopper. Hedda Hopper's got to be, um... Helen Mirren in Trumbo. Mm, not necessarily. Sure. Someone else has played Hedda Hopper. Perhaps on television. Oh, God. Why are you doing this to me? Um, okay. Herb is Stemple it... and Pops Racer are your two others. Pops Racer. Is that like Speed Racer? Perhaps. <laughs> go with it. I would say go with it. Okay. Uh, Speed Racer. Who is in Speed Racer? Emil Hirsch is in Speed Racer. Not as Pops. Uh, oh, so someone is his dad in Speed Racer. Yeah. Is it like Christopher Walken? Who's in that movie? It's, it's, the, it's the question that I'm asking you. <laughs> um, I wonder if I could give you some easier ones uh, for these people. Hold on a second. Hedda Hopper is a television character from the last several years. I'm guessing it's Feud, which I didn't watch. Ah, you would have enjoyed Feud. Would I have? Yes, you would have. You absolutely would have. Okay. Um, Who was in that show? It's not Catherine Zeta-Jones, who I, you know, love. Right. Um, Was she played by... It's not Susan Sarandon. It's not Jessica Lang. Was she who Judy Davis played? Yes, Okay, Judy Davis. It's not going to be for a Woody Allen movie that won the Palm. Correct. Was it... Was it Barton Fink? It was Barton Fink. Very good. Barton Fink. Herb Stemple was John Turturro in Quiz Show, of course. And John Goodman played Pops Racer in Speed Racer. Oh, maybe I should watch Speed Racer. 
I keep wanting to, but I also feel like I don't have uh, a proper uh, viewing vessel for it. Everybody's just like, you got to see it on like the best quality, whatever or else it's going to be totally lost in you. And it's true because I initially saw it on like a DVD on whatever crappy television I had when I was 20 <laughs> years old. So, or 28 years old, I guess. God. Anyway, um, your next one. Jack Stanton, Dr. Pamela Isley, and John Shaft. Uh, so this is it. John Shaft. It's got to be Samuel L. Jackson. This has got to be Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Any guesses as the other ones? Uh, Travolta and Uma Thurman. <laughs> yes, but play the game here, my friend. Okay, sorry. Like... <laughs> sorry. Um, okay. What, what were the names? Jack Stanton and Dr. Pamela Isley. Dr. Pamela Isley is for Uma Thurman. Um, I mean, it's not... Is that her name Her name before she's Poison Ivy? Yes, that's her name before okay, she's cool. Poison Ivy. Yeah. Um, couldn't think of another movie where she's a doctor. Um, Jack Stanton. Is that Face Off? No, let's say it's Governor Jack Stanton. Oh, so uh, Primary Colors. Primary Colors, yes. All right, this next one is tough, so I, I give, I'm giving you the credits as they are listed on IMDb, all right? So it is uh, Barry Sheck, Ultron, and Carrie, parentheses, Wedding One. Wedding One? Yes. Carrie, Interesting. C-A-R-R-I-E, parentheses, Wedding One. Why am I forgetting who Ultron was? Um... Mm, this is like, huh. I'm probably forgetting who Ultron was because it's only one movie, but it's a famous, this casting was smart, I remember. It's not Willem Dafoe, but it's like Willem Dafoe. You're you're not wrong there. Um, Or it's like Jeremy Irons, but it's not Jeremy Irons. It is... Um, why would somebody not... be captioned as Wedding One in a film? Four weddings and a funeral. Right. Hmm. Who? So it's a British person. Is it? Ooh. Maybe not. Um. Okay. Ultron. It's one of those very serious sounding actors. It is a. Um. Mm, mm, James Spader. It's James James Spader. Spader. Yes. Um, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Has Andy McDowell in it? Is it Sex, Lies, and Videotape? It's Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Yes. Great. Andy McDowell is Carrie uh, Wedding One in Four Weddings and a Funeral. James Spader is the voice of Ultron. Uh, Barry (laughs) Sheck, you would remember not too long ago on this very podcast, was Peter Gallagher in Peter Gallagher. All right. Next one, Donald Kaufman, Catherine Harris, and George McFly. Um, okay, so Donald Kaufman is Nicolas Cage in Adaptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, George McFly is Crispin Glover? Yes. In Back to the Future. Who was the second name? Catherine Harris. Which sounds like a name that I know, but what Nicolas Cage movie has won the Palm Door? Mm, I feel like this is going to be embarrassing, and people are yelling at me already. Um, Crispin Glover. 
You're not. Yeah, you're probably not going to get it with Crispin Glover. I don't think. Okay, because is he just a small role? It's not leaving Las Vegas. That wasn't. It's actually. not leaving Las Vegas, especially because Pulp Fiction won the Palm that year. Right. Um, so no, wait. That be, was the oh, next. No, 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 sorry, no, no, leaving Las no, Vegas no, was yeah, the next year. I'm wrong. The second one is Laura Dern. This is Wild at Heart. Yeah, Laura Dern and what? Um. Uh. Uh. uh Jurassic Park. No, recount. She played sec- Florida Secretary of State Catherine Harris in the oh, HBO duh. film. Oh, that's, that's, that's the Jurassic Park. It's Ellie. What, whatever. Sorry. All right. Next one. Chief Martin Brody, Grace Farrell, and Joan Crawford. Okay. Um, those first two names definitely ring a bell. Joan Crawford is... Um, is that also TV? Is that Jessica Lang? That's Jessica Lang. Cool. Um, say the first two again. Chief Brody, Chief Martin Brody, Grace Ooh. Farrell. Martin Brody, Chief Brody. That's like a 90s movie. It's not. Oh. <laughs> it's not a 90s movie. Um, Jessica Lang winning a, a movie that won the Palm Door. Grace Farrell is a character played by an actress who died this year. Who this property has been uh, has existed in a few different iterations, famously. Oh. Um, what are things that keep getting sort of revived and remade a lot? Superhero movies. Okay, or things that gay people like. <laughs> things that gay people like. Uh, uh, all about Eve. No, Share. what are things that gay people like that keep getting revived or remade a lot? Musicals. Yes. Grace, she died 30 years ago. Not that one. (laughs) (laughs) Not that one from uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. No. Um, Um, She's sort of a supporting character in this movie musical, but, like, she's very likable. She gets a, like, she gets to dance a lot, which this actress was very well known for. Is it Anne Ryan King? It is Anne Ryan King from Annie. In Annie, the movie is all that jazz. Movie is all that jazz. Chief Brody is who? Uh, that is Jaws. That is Roy Scheider. It's Roy Scheider and Jaws. Yes, very good. Yep. Not a 90s movie. <laughs> Not a 90s movie, in fact. All right. Oh, God. Rest in peace, Anne Ryan King. All that jazz. Uh, top five movies ever made. All right. This one, just know that I'm trying to uh, to fool you a little bit. All right. Billy Jean King, Judas Iscariot, and Rogue. Um, okay, I'm guessing you're trying to confuse me with Billy Jean King, but Emma Stone has never been in a movie that's won the Palm Door. Correct. So, um, Rogue has to be X Men. Is it? I'm pretty sure this is the piano, and Holly Hunter has played Billie Jean King on TV. Correct. And is Anna Paquin's character 
Does Rogue. she play Rogue? She does. Yes, very good. Okay, uh, cool. Billie Jean King is a uh, Holly Hunter in When Billy Beat Bobby. The uh, what was the Sam film. Neill role? Uh, it wasn't Sam Neill. It's Judas Iscariot as Harvey Keitel in The Last Temptation of Christ. That is right. That's right. Of course, I don't get the biblical one, but I can get Rogue. All right. This one, it'll be interesting to see how this goes. This is also a little, uh, let's say, challenging. John Gustafson, Loretta Lynn, and Lex Luthor. <laughs> Gustafson is... Um, Jack Lemon in the Grumpiers Old yes. Men's movies. Correct. I knew you would um, get that one. What was the second? Loretta Lynn. Loretta Lynn. That is Sissy Spacek in Coal Miner's Daughter. Is this, uh, I think it's, is it Costa Gavras that directed this movie, Missing? Yes. Costa Gavras is Missing from 1982. Yeah. Lex Luthor is not from a film, but it is John Shea's character in uh, Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. Spectacular. It's the only other cast member in Missing I could find a recognizable role for. Um, <laughs> all right, last one. Cyclops, Achilles, Murph. <laughs> it's Jessica Chastain is Murph. Um, Achilles is Brad Pitt in um, uh, Troy. Cyclops, it can't be Sean Penn. Oh, no, it's Ty Sheridan um, is in X-Men First Class. We are talking about the Tree of Life. The Tree of Life. Very good. All right. You did uh, very well. Those were not uh, universally easy ones. So another successful attempt at Alter Egos. Uh, Fantastic. I think that's probably the best I've ever done at that game. Yeah, for sure. Well, once again, when and I give I you... I tried not to cheat like you say that I'm cheating if I, I just know the category. I just... It's, the, it's, a, it's more fun to watch you work it out, I will say. Um, this is uh, an int- uh, House of the Spirits. Bring it back to House of the Spirits. This is pre-Antonio Banderas becoming a thing in the United States. Sort of yeah, just Yeah, like, well, it's... Desperado maybe, is 95, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, to mainstream audiences, yes. he would have been, at this point, known most for Philadelphia, which comes out in 93. But, right. like, still he's most famous for the Almodovar movies. Right. And also uh, Madonna thirsting after him in Truth or Dare. <laughs> but again, I think you're still talking about sort of like limited audiences, right? Like people who are into foreign language films or gay shit or Madonna, which is the same thing, um, knew who Antonio Banderas was. But he, you're right, Philadelphia was the most sort of mainstreamy crossover uh, into the United States at that point. It does feel like Desperado is the moment where like it really uh, clicks for mm-hmm. like Antonio Banderas, uh, leading actor in American films, he's not bad in this. Again, it sort of just made me think of uh, him playing Che Guevara in uh, in Evita. But okay, well, I mean, he and Winona Ryder don't particularly have any chemistry together. They right. do feel mismatched, but that doesn't feel like their fault. No, I agree with that. Yeah. It does feel like because uh, Jeremy Irons' character is so evil that, like, the movie is, like, working very hard to just be like, Antonio Banderas is just playing a nice guy. Right. Pedro is just a nice guy. Right. Uh, what a rabble rouser he is. You know what I mean? Like, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I, en- I enjoyed sort of seeing him 
silly sort of like you know young, and especially because interest initially I was like. Antonio Banderas is too old for Winona Ryder in this movie. And I'm like, oh, no, he was very young now, too. I think in my mind, yeah. Winona has sort of stayed eternally like 20 years old. And I've allowed Antonio Banderas to age in my mind because I've probably seen him in more There's things. There's like a 15-year period where Antonio Banderas is like crystallized as the same age. Right. For but like his a decade and But now. he's crystallized as like in his like almost like late 30s right you know what i mean and like winona is crystallized as like just out of college like she never really for me aged much more than reality bites in my mind even though she has sort of come back recently in things um some of them good some did you see um the plot against america at all i didn't I she's need to quite good in that because i know people love it she's quite good in that i will say um everybody is uh zoe kazan also very good in that um not a, i mean Again, that's one that, like, watching that movie during not only, like, pandemic lockdown, but, like, while Trump was still president. And, like, it's sort of, you know, it is a movie about creeping fascism that you're just like, oh, God, like, too real, too real. Uh, But here we are. So, yeah, House of the Spirits never really made it off of the launch pad. 94, what did Miramax have going for them in 94? It's interesting that... uh, while you pull that up, I do think like it's not surprising that their finger quotes biggest acquisition up to that point happened now because like they are coming off of a lot of prestige successes. They're coming off of Oscar successes like the after the crying game, my left foot, you know, right, right. you see this progression happening for Miramax. And they were still very um, set on sort of foreign language films and foreign language directors. They had sort of seen success with stuff like um, Farewell, My Concubine or uh, the Kislowski Three Colors films, that kind of a thing. Was that uh, night? Uh, so it says on... Uh, I think they had. I think they had some sort of uh, hand in, in the American distribution of that because it's listed on their, as I say, Wikipedia page, which I, has become my crutch in this for better or for worse. So, the Wayback Machine is less and less helpful to us. Yeah, and so that was like ninety three, ninety four with uh, Miramax as well. Uh, ninety four is House of the Spirits for them. It is. A little film called The Crow, which was uh, Dimension slash uh, Miramax. Uh, oh, God, do you remember Little Buddha? The mm-hmm. Keanu Reeves film, Little Buddha, the Bertolucci film? Yes, I I haven't seen it, but I know it as a, uh, I think, slightly problematic thing in the culture that's yes. been wiped off the face of the earth. Yes. Uh, but of course, 94, we talked about it in the Palme d'Or game. The big one, uh, the big dog on the block is Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. which is, you know, obviously almost sort of universally acknowledged as like second place to Forrest Gump that year. I've I've talked a lot about how that was a big Oscar sort of baptism for me is being very invested in the Pulp Fiction versus Forrest Gump of it all in 1994. Mm-hmm. But like other stuff that they have in 94, they have Heavenly Creatures, Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures, which, which gets a screenplay nomination at the Oscars that year. They have Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle, which doesn't really get talk about that nominated, movie. but like Jennifer Jason Lee is very much in the 
best actress sort of conversation critically, like among critics. They have uh, Queen Margot, which is the uh, uh, Isabel Ajani Vincent Perez film. Uh, that Very gets, violent. <laughs> yes. Um, also won, I believe it won Best Actress at the Cannes Film Festival that mm-hmm. year, and it got a costume nomination i know it got like one oscar nomination and i'm pretty sure it was costumes yeah yeah um and then uh three colors red that year again whatever sort of like hand they had in uh that distribution that gets a best director nomination in 94 which is like that was the big sort of before the uh, surprise Almodovar talk to her uh, nomination, there was uh, Kislowski getting. This was sort of happened every once in a while, where a foreign language film director would get a surprise best director nomination without a best picture nominee. I can't, off the top of my mind, remember if this was also the case for Red, but the Almodovar thing, part of what fueled that director nomination and screenplay win, honestly, is. Um, like, that was such a, like, critically revered movie, but Spain didn't submit it for foreign language, so, like, it helped kind of catapult yeah, um, those other categories that it maybe wouldn't have gotten yeah. otherwise. Um, other, though, like, this is not the end of the Miramax Oscar score, story in 1994, though. Also, Tom and Viv, which gets actress and supporting actress nominations for Miranda Richardson and Rosemary Harris, and... Bullets Over Broadway is that mm-hmm. year, which wins Best Supporting Actress for Diane Weist, gets two more acting nominations, a directing nomination for Woody Allen, probably was very close to getting a Best Picture nomination. So, like, they're all over the Oscar ballot this year. This is really, like, for as much as, you know, they had had some Oscar success leading up to this, like, 1994 is kind of the big Miramax coming out party as far as, like, being, like, a major, major contender. Mm-hmm. which is huge which is huge for them so like the writing was on the wall for the house of the spirits already kind of uh, even if it wasn't bad <laughs> um it would have had a lot of competition in-house to it's interesting to think about what could have happened if they had released it late 93 yeah um yeah though like those actress races are considerably more competitive Tougher. than they yeah. are in the year after yeah, 1993. Lead. I don't know who you would run as a lead. Meryl. Um, I think you'd run Meryl. And she wouldn't be nominated. No. Um, Plus, maybe this was... in the 94 one, because like that's a historically um, uh, unloved, like a, a historically lean Best Actress race where Jessica Lange wins her second for Blue Sky, a movie that is bad, that she is yeah. bad in, that had sat on a shelf for two years. Um, but I feel like we end up talking about that a lot. And there were like, you know, we've talked about uh, Juliette Lewis and Natural Born Killers. We've talked, we're going to, we will at some point talk about Jennifer Jason Lee and Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle. Like, there were definitely other contenders there. We always sort of talk about how kind of uh, bunk the 94 best actress category is, or sort of like odd, I would say. And yet, some really good actresses were sort of uh, left out in the cold. And what's there. interesting for House of the Spirits, too, is that these two Oscar years that it kind of straddles, Winona Ryder is nominated at both. Yes, 93 and 94. The other thing is, this is probably in the least successful slash respected 
era of Meryl Streep's entire career. And it lasts all of literally like three years. But like after Postcards from the Edge, which she gets nominated for in 1990, she makes um, Defending Your Life, which people really like, but it wasn't like a hit or anything like that. Death Becomes Her, which was like kind of maligned at the time, especially for her. And this was still like Meryl can't do comedy. We've talked about this before. Um, And then The River Wild, which gets her a Golden Globe nomination. But I think even at that time, it was seen as like Meryl. It was like a pot boiler, right? Meryl sort of like paying the bills, like playing an action hero for some reason. And people didn't like critics, I don't think, really respected it very much. And it took to the Bridges of Madison County in 95 for her to sort of get back on the Oscar nomination train. And Which, like, because of what the novel was, it was seen as this, like, weepy junk, right, right that she right. and Clint Eastwood eventually elevate when they, you know, when people see the movie. Right. The 90s were the years of the, of Meryl sort of being the butt of, of a joke of, you know, she's the accent queen, she's whatever. And, like, you still get a little bit of that now in the, like, Florence Foster Jenkins Iron Lady era, but there, that still is coupled with this respect of, like, but she's also, like, the greatest, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in the 90s, I think it was sort of chic to be, like, oh, Meryl's boring, Meryl's not funny, Meryl only does accents, and, and that kind of a thing. And House of the Spirits really feeds into all of those sort of negative perceptions of of where she was at that point. It's sort of absurd to think of like, oh, she didn't get a nomination from 1990 to 1995, and it's like her longest stretch. Like, it's her longest stretch tied with like literally now. Like literally <laughs> from the post until now is also like that's the longest it's been since that stretch in the early 90s that's the longest they've ever gone without nominating her it's time <laughs> it's time <laughs> I mean, to bring Meryl back to the Oscars nothing happened with uh let them all talk which like i think is excluding maybe the post my favorite performance of hers in a very long time i think She's if people great. went and watched it again they would see uh, after like the twists of it how fucking funny she is in that movie as this yes. like pretentious yes. writer who's yes. also like I, I won't like spoil what's going on but like also incredibly conscious of uh what that movie's trajectory is and not overplaying her hand in terms of like the character's emotion and the character's absolutely. implications absolutely um, but yes nothing happened with that great movie she has so many line readings that are like, she really is just like, she's the friend who like everything she says, you just are internally just like, oh my God, I cannot believe that like, she's so insufferable. Like that kind of, it's just like, it's wonderful. She's so wonderful. All right. Um, well, and, and I guess the reveal is that she is wonderful. Also the glasses choice. Like there's these times where she's just like, rambling on in this whisper and she's like looking off into space and the prescription of the glasses they gave her does just (laughs) enough to make her like bug-eyed and it's so (laughs) funny to me yep it's totally true all right um is there anything else you wanna uh get into for house of the spirits before we wind down I think we should get out of the House of Spirits. 
<laughs> I'm just sort of like running through my notes as I was making them last night. Um, sure, saying, wait, I'm not finished to the priest. I mentioned that. Oh, God. Also, during her like recitation, when she's describing watching uh, Jeremy Irons and Meryl Streep have sex in this movie, she uses the phrase, the abundance of juices, which like. Oh, yes, which I was like, madam. I also that, but also like, sounds like the title of a really sort of like esoteric play that would like show up on Broadway <laughs> in the thick of, of like Tony award season where it's just like also nominated Tyne Daly for the abundance of juices. That's like- and she's just like, she plays a woman who like has like an apple juice empire or something. You know what I mean? Where she like comes from nothing and mm-hmm. she's sort of monologuing about uh, her difficulties making her way as an entrepreneur. Or it's like the Thomas Hardy version of the story of Goop. <laughs> the abundance of juices. That's like the, it's literal juices. The like Gwyneth it's Gwyneth Paltrow with two dozen different types of juices. Oh my god. She also then follows that up with she says strange secret smells. I'm like, all right, horny lady. Like <laughs> so horny. It's amazing. Strange secret sw- smells. Like, we get it. You're a virgin. It's fine. <laughs> Smilla's sense of strange secret smells. That's uh, <laughs> That was Meryl in the sequel. Or that was Glenn Close in the sequel. Um, I also... I just wrote down... Also, R.I.P. Vanessa Redgrave with, like, five different exclamation points. Because, like, the scene where Meryl's parents die in this film is so again we talk about how the supernatural stuff the magical realism comes and goes with really no rhyme or reason in this film and so at some point Meryl's just sort of sitting there and then she has a flash of Vanessa Redgrave and Armin Mullerstahl in the car on their way to come visit and the brakes go out and like Armin Mullerstahl is like cranking the wheel left and right and he can't get him to stop and he's just like no and then they cut to the car getting obliterated by a train and like going up in a giant (laughs) fireball and i'm like i don't think this is supposed to be filmed for a laugh moment but the timing of it absolutely makes it a laugh moment especially since it's uh vanessa redgrave it's literally like toonce's going over the cliff in the car and then the car sort of explodes into a fireball at the bottom. Like that's the level of comedic timing of the demise of Vanessa Redgrave and Armin Mullerstahl in this film. It is, it's a lot. I think my only final note is to bring up one of our, this had Oscar buzz conspiracy theories that we've revisited a few times whenever we talk about Glenn Close she still only has fatal attraction on her known for. I know. It's amazing. It's, it's I just it's... I refuse to believe that that is anything but intentional. It's a Stonehenge level mystery though in terms of just like who did that and how has it been allowed to persist because like Glenn has a team she has managers and agents and publicists and like all of that. And somebody's job is to make sure that her Wikipedia doesn't have lies in it. And I imagine that that same person's job has to be 
making sure that IMDb isn't shading the fuck out of her by only giving her one known for. Well, it's... It, it does. you can't explain it on the algorithm, even, because, like, she has major movies. She has multiple Oscar nominations. She plays a Disney character. Multiple Disney well, characters. She's well, done a Disney voice. She's Corella DeVille. And the algorithm isn't four movies as long as they're known enough. It's like, no, they're the four most known. Even if you've only made like six movies, the four that you're most known for will show up on here. Like, you know, child actors have a known for. Like, it's it's amazing. Reality show contestants have a known for. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. All right. Speaking of... The IMDb known for. Do you want to play the IMDb game? Uh, I think that sounds like a great idea. Guys, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says uh, that they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mentioned that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Or, you know, maybe we luck into uh, someone who just has one movie on their known for. <laughs> that would be quite easy. Yes. Yeah, All we'll right. avoid that. Bryce Dallas Howard also still only has three, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Including Gold. <laughs> a movie I've still not seen. Um, I refuse to see unless it's yeah. for this podcast. Chris, would you like to go first or uh, give first or guess first? I guess go. You'd be going. Uh, I feel like I always say I want to go first, so I'll guess first. All right. So, all right. This one's going to be a little challenging, but I believe in you. Okay. Um. Obviously, we're talking about director Billy August for this film. We talked about his. Palme d'Or winning, Oscar winning film, Pele the Conqueror, starring Best Actor nominee, Max von Sydow. So, why don't you take a shot at the known for for Max von Sydow? Ooh, I don't know if this will be all that hard, though maybe I could be naive. Um, Because, like, Max von Sydow, he's in Star Wars movies, he's a multiple Oscar nominee... Um, I mean, well, maybe it would be hard because he's got decades of cinema. He does. Um, but I'm going to start it off with, uh, The Exorcist. This is where it gets crazy. It is oh, not Oh, get the, the fuck Exorcist. out of town. I know. I know. Wow. I mean, he's not first build. I think he, no, I think he's like second build in that movie. Yeah. It's probably like Ellen Burstyn and then him. He's the titular Exorcist. He is, in fact, the titular exorcist. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm not going to guess that his nomination for Pele the Conqueror puts that in there, but I do think incredible, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close is there. You are correct. Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Cool. Where he plays the renter. <laughs> um, I don't think... Because his, his Star Wars role is small... There's a million people in that movie. I feel like that's not going to show up. And I think roles where he's like the lead is going to show up. Or a significant role like um, like he's like the evil entity or whatever in What Dreams May Come, right? I'm going to guess What Dreams May Come. That is not a bad guess, but that is incorrect. 
His Great. character in that is called The Tracker. Really? Cool. The Renter and The Tracker in the same career. All right, so that's two strikes. So your remaining films to guess are... Sorry, give me a second as I scroll back. Uh, 1957, 1980, and 2002. Okay, so I was right about no Star Wars. I was right about no Pele the Conqueror. Um, 57 has to be a Bergman movie. I think the most obvious is going to be Seventh Seal, so I'll say that. Correct, the Seventh Seal. Very well reasoned. O2 is a big year for movies. I know he's in Minority Report, which I feel like, you know, the algorithm loves Spielberg. I'll say Minority Report. Correct. He is the antagonist in Minority Report. Sorry to spoil you on Minority Report. (laughs) You know who the hero of Minority Report is? Lois Smith. Lois Smith, obviously. I threw Lois Smith on my last uh, trivia, uh, trivia quiz, and a lot of people got her, and I'm very happy about that. I do adore her. Um, okay, so 1980, Max von Sydow. Is that Conan the Barbarian? No, but you're on the right, in the right milieu, sort of. Okay, so this is when he's doing, like, genre trash. Um, yes. Yes. Okay. Um, what the hell else was there? He's Blofeld, but that, I think, is later. Uh, yes, not Blofeld. I forget what one that is. I just know he's a Blofeld. Never Say Never Again, 1983. Sure. Yeah, like, certain era of Bond movies, I can't tell those movies apart. Um... Unless so this like is sort of Moonraker. cults, culty, um, like you said, like genre trash is a good sort of word. Uh, I think people seem to remember this fondly, even though it also feels like uh, I've never seen this movie, so I don't know qu- is it to like quite Logan's what level. Run or something. It's not Logan's Run, but again, it feels like you're circling the thing. I feel here. like it's not something I've seen. It, by all appearances, seems pretty campy, and again, having never seen it or being sort of part of that kind of fandom of it, I don't quite know for sure. He certainly it's seems to be Excalibur. playing a problematic kind of a role. Oh. Um, so he's not playing a white person, I'm guessing. Yeah, but the, I, it's unknown how much the... the uh, sci-fi of it sort of ameliorates this again i wish i was a little bit more uh schooled in so it's got to be like spacey right like it's Uh outer space yep huh and i'm guessing he's a villain yes he is in fact sort of looming over the poster of this movie great Uh, um it's a Dino De Laurentiis production. Okay. With yeah, music but this is by like Queen, Dino is making junk. Um, with music by Queen. Oh, it's um, 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 um Flash Gordon. It is Flash Gordon, nineteen eighties. Flash Gordon, where he plays the character of the Emperor Ming, with uh, 
very kind of, uh, as again, I would say problematic uh, implications there. Anyway, Fantastic. again, it's sci-fi. Who the hell knows? Uh, so, yeah, that's Max Fonsito. Thank you, Rest. Uh, he passed, like, right before lockdown, if I'm yeah. remembering correctly. Like, to the point where, like, it really got, like, lost, and he died on March 8th. 2020 so like was that was he like the last person to die before the oscars or was he the first person to die after the oscars Oscars were in february still so yeah it was after oscars that's right um uh, may he rest um okay so for you i actually went into the uh actress races for the years i guess we're saying of house of the spirits I mentioned that the lead actress race from 1994 is notoriously uh, uncompetitive. Uh I went with a performer who actually did well for that season, but did not win for Tom and Viv, Miranda Richardson. Ah, we mentioned it briefly. The Miramax uh, distributed Tom and Viv. Okay. Miranda Richardson. You would think this would be pretty easy because like she's really mostly known for a handful of roles and not a ton else you know i obviously i love her from the hours but i'm guessing she's probably too minor of a character in the hours although i reserve the right to go back on that i'm gonna say the crying game correct the crying game where she's the big sort of poster actress of that film even though she's really not in as much of it as you would think um she really does cut quite the figure though with that wig and uh sort of that expression on her face okay her two oscar nominations are for tom and viv and damage and i don't know if either one of them are big enough but again i'm gonna put a pin in those um i feel like she's like in like at least one sort of big movie oh well she's in um Harry Potter. Is it Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire? It is not. Incorrect. Okay. Those are always a challenge. We used to have the rule about we would try yeah. to avoid Harry Potter and the MCU, and I feel like less and less that those movies show up. I agree. I think that's that's absolutely the case for, I think, both of those franchises. Which is nice, because now we can sort of dip into those pools again. Um, Could also right, be I'm just that gonna... we're not like trying for people like Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth, yeah. <laughs> right? I would, um, in a lot of contexts. Okay, uh, damage. I'm just going to guess damage. Incorrect. Um, very rare to have a performer who multiple. If they have multiple Oscar nominations, that you won't see one of their nominations in right. there. I think, unfortunately, for Miranda Richardson, both of her nominations are movies that yeah. just fully don't exist anywhere they're, i think they it's were even they were small even at the time and yeah and, yeah exactly all right great actress though but your years are 1999 2002 and 2002 is one of the 2002 spider yes it is weird that's weird she i think got a like a regional critics prize for that she definitely did i David still think it's, i mean 
Spider. It's odd that damages or that dam- damage and uh, Tom and Viv doesn't show up, but Spider does. I guess the Cronenberg factor. She's over, huge but. in that movie, though. She's yeah. like playing multiple characters. Yeah, it's a big performance. There's another 2002, and then what's the other year? 99. 1999. Oh God, am I missing something like major? I mean. You need to circle back to some things. Well, 2002 is obviously The Hours. Yes, yes. Okay. Good for her. Good for her for showing up as Vanessa Bell in The Hours on her known for. I love I her I feel for like that. some of the other secondary actresses in that movie, though, I think Miranda Richardson is actually billed higher than they are. Like, I think yeah. she's billed higher than Claire Dane. She's billed higher than Toni Collette. Um, yeah, that's interesting. All right, 1999. Where was she? where was where was the Miranda Richardson experience in 1999? Um, obviously, this is well after even like Enchanted April. Um, is it American or is it British? It's an American movie. Okay, it's a director we've talked about recently. Okay. In a movie that I think is widely liked, but oddly gets left out of, like, 1999 conversations. Oh, right. I should think about that, like, 1999 films. Um, She actually has quite a few uh, credits for 1999, including uh, the voice of the lead in the animated King and I. That is terrible. Oh, wow. That's interesting. All right. Um... Was there a Gus Van Sant in 99? This is another performance of hers that is huge. And uh, it's huge because there's a twist involved. Huh. Oh, I'm really... She's a villain that you don't know is the villain until the end of the movie. Is it like the other Avengers movie? No. No. No, you're getting pretty far afield. This is a movie, I'm pretty sure it made $100 million or close to $100 million. Um, I could be wrong there. Multiple Oscar nominations. Oh. Multiple Oscar nominations, 1999. A director we've talked about recently. A director we've talked about recently. Okay, wait a second. Very I'll recently. This. I'll get this. Very recently. Um, oh, God. She is. You're right. She's in Sleepy Hollow. Yes. Huh. Sleepy Hollow rules. I got to see it again. It's been so long. I totally forgot that she was in that. Yes, very recently in terms of like last week recently. Yes. Um, all right. That's a very interesting known for from Miranda. You should watch Sleepy Hollow next uh, I know. minute that you have two hours of downtime. I think you'll enjoy yeah. it. All right. I will. I promise I will do that. All right. Good episode on the House of the Spirits. Uh, as to our listeners, should you seek this movie out? It's not streaming for free anywhere, so I would probably suggest not paying for it. <laughs> yes. I, I don't know if this is a movie. Uh, support your local library systems. Find a copy of the DVD at your library. 
sure. Yes. Um, at the very least, for uh, for Glenn Close's uh, confessional scene, yes. it's, that's very funny. All right. Otherwise, yeah, that is our episode. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find my abundance of juices on twitter.com oh, at crispy oh, oh. <laughs> That's F-E-I-L. Also on Letterboxd under the same oh my name. God. My juices are my Christ. tweets. Oh my god. Uh, I am uh, being horrified by all of it on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I'm also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed spelled the exact same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts, which now includes Spotify. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple, Apple Podcast visibility. So uh, uh, levitate a pen into your hand and write out a nice review and then of course type it up because that's how we do things with uh with uh podcast reviews these days and yeah say something nice about us won't you that is all for this week but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz I'm not the baddest bitch you like